The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, everybody, depending on where you are in, in North America. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have engaged in the past few months... And actually, over the course of the program, uh, which is now extending onto four years, uh, a number of topics that are of significant importance to the archaeology community and specifically education. And uh, I'd like to emphasize on that note that generally higher, and we're talking about higher education here, uh, that higher education has undergone some very significant transformations over the past four or five years. And one of them is sort of a reassessment on what the university means and how the university's charge is changing uh, depending on the changing demographics of the population and the economy generally. And uh, one of the elements that is happening and that has affected anthropology and archaeology departments in particular is what a fr- one of my associates calls the corporatization of the university. And what that means is that universities are being more, run more and more like a business. And that also is a reflection of how uh, particular disciplines are being run going forward. Nowhere is that more significant, I would argue, than in archaeology and anthropology because, um, as we have discussed on other programs, the uh, rise of cultural resource management and the corresponding dwindling in pure research has resulted in a very sharp change in emphasis from applied archaeology to, uh, from rather to applied archaeology from a more Uh, academic venue and uh, one of the uh, 
young professors that has witnessed this transition is my next guest, Victor Thompson. He is an associate professor of anthropology and the director of the Center of Archaeological Sciences at the University of Georgia. Uh, Victor's primary interests are in the Native American societies and the early European colonists and obviously the contact period and specifically in coastal and wetland areas of the American Southeast. He has undertaken extensive research in Florida and the Georgia coast and has also worked in France, Mexico, and in the Caribbean. Um, Victor is one of the up-and-coming professors in this field. He has he was trained what I, in what I would call the, um, the onset of, in the, in the um, domains of progressive archaeology and specifically applied archaeology to a large degree and has managed to carve a career that links uh, applied archaeology with a very serious focus on the archaeological sciences. And the archaeological sciences, of course, is another element in archaeology that has expanded significantly over the past decade and certainly in monumental ways over the past five years. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my guest today, Victor Thompson. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Um, you know, I've uh, I've been actually a, a big fan of the program, and uh, as we talked about uh, earlier, I even actually use it in my course instruction. So, really do appreciate you having me on. I, it's my honor to have you, Victor. Let's talk. Let's launch right into it uh, because when when we when we engage scholars and university professors very often we try to get into their views and visions of archaeology and victor is very straightforward about that and i would like for you victor to tell us how your training equipped you for what you're doing today and what the direction that you see is for undergraduate and graduate education going forward well um I think my training, just in in terms of thinking broadly uh, about uh, larger questions of the past, as well as uh, embracing new technologies, um, things that we would consider uh, methods under the realm of archaeological science, actually began uh, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, at the University of Georgia, um, which is a little strange for me, having gone back and now I'm a professor at the university where I also did my undergraduate degree. Um, and so my former professors are now my my colleagues. Um, but a, a couple of things uh, really started me off on this direction of, of big thinking about big questions and applying the archaeological sciences was uh, a lot of the classes I took um, as an undergraduate, which emphasized geoarchaeology, uh, archaeometry, uh, shallow geophysics, um, isotope geochemistry um, was, uh, you know, put in there as well. And so these were the seeds, um, you know, that sort of sprouted from my undergraduate career uh, into my graduate coursework at the University of Kentucky. And I was very for uh, fortunate to have uh, wonderful professors there who uh, encourage, again, that big thinking and, and the application of um, archaeological sciences to, 
my dissertation questions uh, where I did use shallow geophysics um, and oxygen isotope geochemistry to look at sedentism and monument construction on the coast of Georgia. And, and so it was really those sort of formative uh, uh, years, my undergraduate and then carrying it through my graduate work, that uh, I really embraced archaeological sciences. Um, the, the other thing is as I was finishing up my uh, dissertation work, uh, which was on the Georgia coast, uh, so I had a chance meeting with uh, the director of a National Science Foundation uh, founded uh, project for the uh, uh, Sapelo Island as a long-term ecological research site. It was a biologist, and we started talking about uh, human use of the landscape in the past and how that might affect uh, plant distributions and uh, the ecology, um, what were the land use histories that Native Americans uh, left on the environment that still might influence that ecosystem. And that's where I started to engage in interdisciplinary work, where now I've, at this point in my career, I've collaborated with biologists and you know, marine scientists and uh, ecologists looking at these intersections between modern ecosystems and the ancient use of the landscape. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> well, let's let's get into that to to some degree. I think that you know certainly I'm older than you are, and and I was trained during a different time period when um, archaeological science was nevertheless acknowledged as a very major focus of how we get to questions about the past and certainly questions of the environmental and human interface. But one of the topics that was also pretty important was modeling and mm -hmm. looking at settlement systems and looking at uh, hunter-gatherer uh, adaptations from a variety of different perspectives, more, I would say, in a theoretical framework rather than actual applied framework insofar as, yes, you would bring interdisciplinary specialists into your program and into your research projects, but the main focus really was more anthropological, and as the scientific element of it was becoming or was considered to be well, that was a means to an end. And I think that as we're going through time, people like yourself in particular, you uh, the the field has become so detailed and so. Uh, science-focused, that the science itself is no longer a means, but it's, it's sort of becoming the method that that gets you there, and you have to concentrate in some ways, and, and I will say this just to get your opinion, the method is almost import, more important than the end point because the advances in science are so great, and there's so much to capture that we, I won't say that we lose sight of the end, end point, but there are certainly a lot of archaeological scientists who do that specifically. They do archaeological science as an end. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you've hit it right, sort of the nail on the head in that we're... I wouldn't say it, maybe at a turning point or a, there's a crisis right, in, in archaeology. Uh, and it, it, it really is, expresses itself most significantly, I think, when we're talking about graduate training. So um, we are at a moment 
in in uh, anyone who is interested in in questions about the ancient past that we're able to use these technologies to address questions that uh 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and in some cases, five years, two years ago, we never even dreamed we'd be able to answer. And there's this, this thing where n- now you have methods that now open yourself up to new questions or open your discipline up to new questions. And it's not just that, uh, you know, the, the way in which we or we were taught, or you know, you read older textbooks. Is you have your theory, you derive your methods, and then you go out and collect your data to test your ideas, and you know, and then you create your your uh, your your story from that. But that's not always how it works. It, there's a lot of interplay between method and theory, and then and then unanticipated data. It's much more complex, much more messy. So. When we talk about graduate training and we talk about archaeological science, it it could be very easily it be very easy to fall into the trap of of things being siloed, right? So this siloed yeah, that's science. a good word. That's a good yeah. word. Yeah. So I'm I'm just a guy who does ancient DNA, and that's all I think about. And it, and there's nothing wrong with being the the guy who only does ancient DNA, but it has to articulate. And it's through this this articulation between people who really become very, very good at things. Um, and, you, and you almost have to do that because there's so many things out there um, that you could, you know, be a specialist in. You could be a specialist in isotope geochemistry. And, and, in, and in some cases, you might specialize in a specific, you know, isotope. <laughs> like, I only do oxygen. Um, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> you know, it can, be, it can be that specific for some people. Um, but the important thing, I think, is coming back to this idea of interdisciplinary science. Um, and, and for me, as the director for the Center of Archaeological Sciences, we do embrace its interdisciplinary nature. We have, we have uh, faculty associates from art history, uh, chemistry, ag science, um, archaeology, classics. And it, it, it's through that engagement where you... Come to, you have people who come together and and sort of uh, transgress their disciplinary boundaries um, to create something that's more than the sum of its parts. Now, getting back to graduate education on that, in the United States, we have very, very uh, set models of graduate education where you have to take your three or four field approach, you know, your biological, your uh, archaeological, and your... Um, cultural core classes, and then you might do some archaeology classes. But uh, the, the problem becomes is that uh, there are all these specialties out there, and one can't be all things to all people. So we're, this crisis is the striking of a balance between being able to learn the science, being able to be the ancient DNA guy or the, the isotope guy or... or, or, or uh, gal, uh, and and you know also be able to engage in the big questions, and and that's where the crisis comes. It's this tension between being the broad anthropologist and the specialist, and uh, it's it's difficult to solve in in sort of graduate education. I think there are ways of doing that, and I'm you know I'm 
been engaged with a number of initiatives on the University of Georgia campus to really try and and sort of have a middle ground there. Um, because, uh, I mean, we do live in an era where interdisciplinary science is a core mission is a core mission of the university. But the problem is that we have we provide few formal or structured training in interdisciplinary research. And that that is really the I think part of the solution to all this. Even if it's even if it's just within sort of uh you know an anthropology grad program. Yeah, but I, I I agree with that. The, the problem is 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 when you put your your finger right on it, um, because you have so much science, for lack of a better word, swirling around, mm-hmm. uh, you can't do everything. And like you say, um, you know, we we become, uh, in a sense, uh, victims of our own progressivism or our own pro- progress, if you will, by uncovering these new techniques and in some cases you have personnel or professors in archaeology who are so involved in refining not just the applications but actually the technology of their own uh, investigative strategies Mm -hmm. that that's what they do and uh, we're going to have to take a break in a minute but one of the things I'd like to discuss with you is how you see that evolving because as uh, as you know and as as many of our listeners do some don't but archaeology in the United States is practiced as part of a four-field endeavor and that as in many other areas sort of offsets the United States and North America generally from what's done in Europe and in many other parts of the world where archaeology is, for lack of a better word, an end in and of itself. I will get back to my very intriguing discussion with Dr. Victor Thompson of the University of Georgia after this break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You've heard of good things coming in packages. Well, maybe there's a little more to that saying. But when you think about it, packaging is one of the most important things that can represent your business. Tune into Ditch the Box with host David Marinak. Each week, we'll discuss flexible packaging, marketing, sales, and how it all comes together in one container. Lower costs, increased margins. Listen to the show. It might just save you a ton. Ditch the Box is heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. 
but we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein back with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Dr. Victor Thompson, Associate Professor of Anthropology and the Director of the Center for Archaeological Sciences at the University of Georgia. Um, Dr. Thompson is uh, very, very well-equipped, shall we say, to discuss this very uh, recently emerging uh, potential conflict, and we've been talking about it as as sort of a developmental issue, but certainly a potential conflict between trying to identify what the ends of archaeology are, are and how they integrate into the broader, uh, shall we say, study of the human condition, which is essentially under the umbrella of anthropology, and the glut of scientific advances in our field that in some ways has defined archaeology as an end in and of itself. And we discussed that in the break, and I think it's a topic that's really worthy of addressing because, uh, as Victor had indicated to me, we are losing students in many cases to the UK and certainly to Germany and France to some degree. It's more and more into Europe rather than in other parts of the world, but specifically to Europe, because they do train their students to be archaeological scientists in many ways, if only because that's how they're, they, they, uh, they train people for the future. And uh, to expand upon that, I mean, archaeology is a very difficult field. It's a competitive field in the academic sector and many other sectors. And the more things you know how to do is going to give you a leg up in the employment domain. And Victor, why don't you carry that a little farther and let me know what your thoughts are on that. Well, yeah, certainly, um, as we talked about in the break, that uh, we are losing students to um, European universities um, because of their focus on archaeological science, because archaeology there is often not a part of uh, uh, anthropology programs, and um, and they offer training, very specific training, uh, that might not be able to be uh, acquired at a U.S. institution. Not to say that all U.S. institutions uh, don't offer this, you know, some overlap and things like that. But it is a different mindset um, and a different training model that. Uh, European universities, um, and in particular the ones I'm most familiar with are in the UK, have for their graduate students. 
and in fact, they're very successful. I mean, I, again, I, I personally have sent students to those universities, and and in fact, uh, students who go over and receive PhDs at those universities are also returning to the United States and uh, getting tenure track jobs, getting jobs in labs, um, particularly uh, uh, laboratories where they actually know how to set up and run a laboratory. Um, and that is something that's very difficult to acquire here um, at a, a U.S.-based institution. Um, so it, it creates a little bit of a conundrum when we, we have a model uh, that is in large part uh, developed out of anthropology. Um, from a time, uh, I think if you looked at some of the older uh, or you know, more established uh, institutions where uh, individuals in those early anthropology departments, they really did it all. Um, you know, I, I think of some of my you know, personal heroes, people like Julian Stewart and, you know, uh, some of the early, you know, founders of anthropology. They, they did ethnography, they did linguistics, they did archaeology. Um, Bill Adams was uh, still at the University of Kentucky when I was doing my uh, undergraduate, uh, sorry, graduate degree there. And he had did uh, ethnography among the Navajo, Navajo traders, and then went on to work with the British Museum for the Aswan High Dam project. And to me, when I spoke with him, he was one of these uh, figures that was sort of the, the last of those people who really did it all. Um, and, and there, there are a few people who are around who still do those kinds of things. But you know, the the field has become so varied, even at the at, in archaeology, that it is just impossible uh, to be all things to to all people, as it were. Well, yeah, I, I think you're right. And let me, I don't want to cut you off, but I just want to throw something else out at you. It used to be, um, certainly when I was in graduate school, and, and probably you, you still have your foot into this um, type of course network that, that we all get involved in, mm-hmm. there used to be a major major class was always method and theory in archaeology. So mm-hmm. the question is, at this point, the way we're discussing it certainly, is method is its own book theory is its own book and that's a very broad course method and theory in archaeology right. and and some people would argue well you know let, let's let's put a focus on the method because that's really doing things mm-hmm. and do we distance ourselves from the theory do we distance ourselves to some degree from the actual objectives of archaeology under an anthropological umbrella i don't know i don't know what the answer is to that and and i'd like to hear your thoughts on that one well i i think um you know I actually was having a, a conversation about sort of this very topic um, at the Society for American Archaeology meetings. Um, you know, we were just there last week. And um, I was sort of reflecting on, you know, sort of the narrative I give in, in, a, bi- you know, in a bio um, when people ask me to send it out. And I sort of always start, I'm an anthropological archaeologist. And I started thinking about that. And, and I, you know, I am, I engage, I'm a trained anthropologist. I engage in theory. Um, you know, I connect it to methods. And, and in, in some cases, there's a dialectic, a, a back and forth there, uh, which informs, 
you know, sort of research questions and things like that. But I think by saying that I have this corner on theory just because I call myself an anthropological archaeologist, I might be doing a disservice to my colleagues in the uh, United Kingdom or elsewhere in the world who whose questions and the way in which they answer their questions are just as significant as mine. They're just as anthropological, but it, it, they just grew up out of a different tradition where archaeology was separate. Now, I think the, the difference comes is where, you know, what kind of valuation do we put on training? And, and this gets back to this again, this, this crisis in graduate training. I think there is a way to solve this in the U.S. I think it's, it's keeping the anthropology uh, and the theory, but also uh, maybe fewer courses uh, and more bench science. So, for example, how is someone really going to know the ins and outs of an elemental analyses that includes like carbon and hydrogen, nitrogen? How are they mm-hmm. going to learn X, X-ray fluorescence spectrometry or you know, any of the other sort of methods, inductively cla- uh, coupled plasma mass spec or, uh, you know, optical emission spectroscopy. I mean, there, there are just a number of different things, stable isotope measurements. You know, you have to do these things, and you, you can't just do them once. Um, you have to develop it as a craft. And you can't do all of them, obviously, but you can become a specialist in that by doing some bench science. Um, engaging in more uh, sort of mentorship laboratory programs um, while still taking broader theory classes. Um, the, there's another component to this, Joe, also that, I, and I'll bring it up now and we can discuss it later, but that's communicating all this to a larger audience. Um, and how do we communicate, you know, the things that we do in, in archaeological science and the big questions that we answer to a general public, um, because that's going to also affect our ability to do graduate training and 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 really make archaeology front and center on people's minds. But you also run into some other conflicts um, mm-hmm. when you're doing that sort of thing. I think once you run into and once you get taken with, in a sense, the archaeological science element of it, you are actually running counter to some people in anthropological archaeology who uh, basically say, and they will ask you this, what is the human element in all of this? And it's a difficult question to wrestle with because when you're so engaged in the scientific element of it, do you lose sight of the bigger picture? I mean, you have folks who, uh, one, one of the classic examples of this, of course, is the study of human dispersals and, and hominid evolution. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, DNA folks who have essentially revolutionized the trajectory of how we we got to where we are today and how mm-hmm. um, human dispersals really went. And they have fingerprints and genomes and, and uh, a variety of different types of strategies and methodologies that really sort of become the focus of what they do. And they also keep in the forefront the issue of human dispersals. I mean, it's not like they're totally devoid of right. looking at that but the bigger picture is something that uh, might be left to people who actually don't do the science per se uh, 
but look at map distributions, look at what this means to an, evolve, an evolving hominid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How do we wrestle with that? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I, I do see, however, that, again, and we're looking at a practical side of it, that um, the ability to look at uh, human di- dispersals with an eye towards the future of mankind, if you will, is something that uh, captures the attention of, fun- of funding foundations, including the National Science Foundation, NIH, and a variety of different types of mm-hmm. uh, funding organizations that uh, will eventually pay, uh, play the biggest role in uh, funding the work. So how do we mm-hmm. do that? And, and, and do, you, do you think, based on your experience, that your university is integrated into that scheme. Well, we're we're certainly trying. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we have a, a, here a choice. A, a, you know, the the perfect model. Um, right. But but let me speak to a couple of different things here. Um, one is uh, in thinking about uh, a technique or method. You know, uh, particularly you know, um, not. DNA studies in archaeology, but just DNA studies in general. And in some cases, uh, these are uh, the techniques driving um, the research, So, which is fine, and you can learn things. Sometimes they're uh, novel, and you know, sometimes they're unexpected, um, and sometimes they're, they're extremely important. Um, the thing that I would say, and I, I wrote an article on um, uh, anthropological geophysics. So geophysics is one of the specialties in my wheelhouse, ground predicting radar, um, among other uh, techniques. And for many years, um, the way in which geophysics was employed in archaeology is the, you know, the site archaeologist would have the geophysicist out, and he says, well, let's do some prospection. So in other mm-hmm. words, let's let's see where we can, you know, dig. Right. Fast forward to um, you know the two thousands, where our ability to process data, uh, make uh, uh, computer models with these instruments, uh, and really image what's below the surface has made leaps and bounds. And one of the things I said is that uh, one of the reasons why. You know, we haven't progressed so much beyond simply looking at uh, geophysical data as simply a product of where to dig and instead as a a data set that has value in and of itself uh, is because it was largely divorced from any kind of uh, theory. And, right. and if you compare this to, say, zooarchaeology or paleoethnobotany, which was always entwined with uh, a particular theory, being ecological theory or environmental or evolutionary theory, that there were much more, it it had a faster track record of becoming, uh, uh, actually being able to answer significant questions, anthropological questions, world history questions, you know, processes of domestication, uh, you know, of, and, and now we're into it. Uh, you know, landscape management uh, and uh, human impacts with those as well. And so one of the things that I was trying to make the case for is that, you know, I wasn't telling you which theories, but we do need to couple uh, our methods with our theory in order for them to progress. I think I do believe you need that 
that give and play between the two. Um, so that's sort of my sort of standpoint on that um, in terms of, you know, uh, I don't ever think we should be, you know, divorce the methods and the theory, but it, it is a tricky situation. Well, that, that's the point. It really is a tricky situation. And um, I think that uh, we, we certainly it, it's certainly one that we're going to have to confront increasingly as, to be very, very candid and, and most applicable, as the job market changes and as there is an increased emphasis on doing, for lack of a better word, applied archaeology, which is essentially heritage or cultural resource management, where the objective really is to get into the ultimate question of site preservation, site maintenance, um, the prevention of destruction of artifacts and monuments, which is uh, unfortunately one of the key developments in the early part of the 21st century as we look at, at war zones and we look at uh, horrific destructions of irreplaceable archaeological resources and, uh, of course, the antiquities market, which uh, in the recent past has become an issue that all of us have to be very concerned with. We will be back um, with our special guest, Dr. Victor Thompson of the University of Georgia, right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Dr. Gladney Radio Show every week for enlightening, provocative, real conversations, advice, and tips that you can use to improve your life. If you feel overwhelmed, confused, stressed, or lost in the cycle of life, this is the show for you. Dr. Gladney and her guests will help you repair, manage, and create an amazing life. No topic is off limits and is discussed with real solutions on our show. That's the Dr. Gladney Radio Show, live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our guest today is Dr. Victor Thompson, who is the Associate Professor of Anthropology and the Director of the Center for Archaeological Sciences at the University of Georgia. Uh, That title is extremely fitting for uh, Vic Thompson's work. He has done uh, geoarchaeological investigations. He has looked at geophysical uh, interpretations and applications in archaeology, and of course, he is housed under the the roof of a department of anthropology and we've been talking about this very very delicate mix of strategies techniques and interpretive potentials that one would be looking at when uh, and in, there's an increased focus on the scientific methodology in uh, in anthropological archaeology and where where do we really put the big stamp i mean do we because of the uh, exponentially increasing knowledge base in method, do we sacrifice theory to some degree? Uh, it's all well and good to say, well, we really have to look at both. But in a practical sense, uh, when you do archaeological science, you have to be trained in scientific approaches. And when you do anthropology, then you have to have sort of a broader perspective on the human condition. Uh, and in that connection, I'd like to ask you, Vic, about your actual experience as tra- as as far as training undergraduates and graduate students is concerned specifically in your department. How do you do that? How do you work out the balance? Let's start with uh, undergraduate training. How does your program look at some of these potential conflicts, or don't they even emerge at this point? Well, I'm not sure that uh, there's a lot of uh, tension at the undergraduate level, Um, but we do actually have uh, and, and actively train our students in archaeological science um, at that level as well. We actually have a uh, certificate in archaeological sciences here that's administered by the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the center that I'm the director of. Uh, and there's a number of uh, prescriptive classes um, that one has to take, field schools, geoarchaeology, archaeometry, in order to uh, obtain the certificate, and and you know they're also outside of anthropology classes since it is an interdisciplinary center. Um, students also have to take classes in geology and geography and um, classics, and there's a, a a wide variety of of ones that they can choose from. But the emphasis is on scientific approaches to questions about the ancient past, regardless of the discipline uh, that they're engaging in. Now, they mm-hmm. still receive a, uh, a, a major degree in, you know, their specified discipline, whether that's geology or classics or anthropology, but they, a, they can all get the archaeological science certificate. Um, the, the other thing that uh, I try and do with undergraduates is uh, give them hands-on um, training. So I'm, uh, you know, at a, a major research university, and for students, I have two main priorities. One is my graduate students, of course, and the other is 
the undergraduates who are really engaged and want to work with a professor, or else why why would they, you know, come to the major research university? And so um, I try and give them projects where they get their first sort of, you know, steps into analytical techniques or thinking about statistical approaches to archaeological questions, and something that they can really start to do and, and actually own as you know, as a as a real researcher, um, so those are the kinds of things that I've done. Actually, um, I have an undergraduate student who just finished up a uh, a paper that we're about to submit for publication. She's the lead author on this. She's done a tremendous amount of work, and we're we're very proud of it. I've done like uh, similar undergraduate projects in the in the past, looking at microware on sharks' teeth that are actually artifacts, but, um, and we've published on that. So that's what I try and do at the undergraduate level. And, and, and also that is just get undergraduates excited um, and involved. And I think that at the very beginning when they're first coming in, that's where you really have to grab them. Is that here are these really big questions um, and we can talk about, you know, the Iceman and let's talk about all the science that had to happen on the Iceman for us to learn about his life. And that really grabs students. Uh, and I think putting it in those terms, you know, in essence, a narrative um, about, and not just a narrative about what happened in the past, but a narrative about the, the archaeologist and the scientist and the development of the science that had to happen for us to learn this, that's what's engaging. That's, I mean, that's, humans are always interested in, in these stories about what was the question? How did we, as, as you know, uh, as scholars of the past learned this? So in, in essence, the, the way in which we got the, the answers is, and the people who got the answers are just as fascinating as uh, the, the ancient people and learning, you know, the, what we learned about them. So I, I think that's, that's been on my approach is, you know, to set uh, in historical context the science and, and the questions about the past um, and to sort of lead students up through, and often sometimes through the mistakes that, that we've made uh, and, the, and the folly that we've had in, in some of our uh, ideas. Um, so that's at the undergraduate level. Yeah, that's at the undergraduate level where I think you're basically just trying to stimulate a certain interest. And <laughs> uh, really, to some degree, you're just, uh, to be crass about it, you're looking for a hook. To, and and uh, archaeology is such an exciting field on that level that I think um, it, it's certainly a hook that actually catches the fish. So the question is, what happens in the graduate level? The graduate level is more difficult. Uh and and one has to be strategic. Now, um, one of the things uh, th- that I try and do is really focus on uh, interdisciplinary thinking, uh, and 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 that um, I want my students to really come away with. Okay, uh, I should be I should have awareness. Uh, of of different different disciplines perspectives as well as different methods um, at, and and know at least what's involved and and the possible pitfalls of certain methods or analytical approaches um, to 
would be, at least be conversant. So they may not be ex- experts, but they'd be conversant in many of the different approaches and, and know, you know when it would be appropriate or not appropriate to, to use them. Or at least at some point in their future career, be, have the awareness to say, I need to consult a specialist. I need to call my, my colleague over at, uh, I don't know, uh, Arizona State or University of Arizona and talk to him about this particular method because I, I, I know the limits of my knowledge. Now, the other thing I want them to do is actually be one of the people who their colleagues at another university has to call because they know they're the, they're the specialist. Mm-hmm. So we're fortunate uh, at the University of Georgia is that we have a core partner. Um, at least the, the Center for Archaeological Sciences has a core partner, and that's the Center for Applied Isotope Studies here, um, which is our radiocarbon lab. Uh, they do a number of other analytical techniques, um, including you know uh, PXRF, uh, a lot of uh, uh, stable isotopes as well. And uh, the great thing about uh, the Center for Applied Isotope Studies is the director there, who's a good friend of mine, is Dr. Jeff Speakman, who is formerly mm-hmm. at the Smithsonian um, and also a, a faculty associate in the, in the Center for Archaeological Sciences. And uh, our collaboration um, has provided students with an opportunity. So some of my graduate students are actually employed there. I have a student over there right now, and she's in the process of learning to actually set up a stable isotope lab. She uh, actually just emailed me earlier today that our micromill that we use is a drill that used for sampling um, shell for oxygen isotopes just came in, and they were going to set it up tomorrow, and um, mm-hmm. they were going to be in the process of setting up a new gas bench. So she will know. She will come away uh, with this. Uh, knowledge of being able to run a stable isotope lab, and without blinking in her interview, uh, she'll be able to set it up and run uh, one of these labs. Um, in, so she's getting that bench science, but we're also uh, engaging in some broader anthropological questions. And so some of the things that we're trying to address is how economies change with large-scale climate fluctuations. And so that's going to be the topic of her dissertation. And I have another student who's doing sort of similar things um, with dendrochronology, and she just returned from an internship in uh, Switzerland, and she has another one at the University of Arizona where she's going to learn all these uh, techniques um, using dendrochronology, and we're going to be looking at uh, climate fluctuations again and, and sea level fluctuations for the lower Atlantic coast. So I guess my my thing is that we're lucky here in that we have this facility that has sort of, uh, if you want to use the term, partnered up with us, um, that is giving our students some some basic bench science, real-world experience, as well as it's uh, the Center for Applied Isotope Studies is, is also a business. They do uh, food products testing. So our students are engaging with other kinds of scientists and, you know, seeing the the possibilities of collaboration. And I think that's that's as that's the best that I can do right now, uh, along with giving them the theory and, uh, you know, the, the background knowledge to sort of take this and run with it. 
So, Vic, I know that you have been able to train your students and pair them up, if you will, with specific scientific uh, strategies, uh, application skills. You have that ability to do that at your university because you have the labs, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is not always, uh, you know, a possi- you know, not always possible, particularly at smaller schools. Do you have situations where you have actually chained, trained a student in a lab and they have ended up working in a lab at another institution or at another facility? Uh, has that happened? Well, um, I've only been at UGA now. This is my fourth year. So uh-huh. I've just now gotten uh, students at the uh, uh, all-but-dissertation-level uh, right now. So, right. Um, although I, one of my former postdocs, of course, ended up working with you. <laughs> That's correct, right. I know that. Yeah. Um, do you see that as a trend, though? I mean, because uh, there is so much in the way of advances in, in terms of archaeological science. It seems to me that it's not a bad, uh, it's not a bad professional end in and of itself. N- no, it's not. And um, the way in which – here's the other benefit, I think. Uh, that comes from being able to be trained in a lab like the Center for Applied Isotope Studies is that um, the university model of, say, uh, a brand-new minted assistant professor getting hired and, and uh, giving, given, given all this money and saying, okay, you're going to start up X such lab. This, this is course. your mass spec lab. And then there's another mass spec lab over in ecology and another mass spec lab over in biology and so on and so forth. There's this redundancy that the university has been paying for for a long time. Right. The same with like uh, genomics and, and uh, DNA, right? Everybody doesn't need their own computing center to deal with their DNA. It's, it's centralized. Of course. And to a certain extent, uh, that's the trend um, because it's cheaper for the university to have these sort of massive laboratories that uh, do the actual processing of samples and prepping of samples and running the samples, whereas the you know the professors in the different uh, disciplines are de- then dealing with the data. Um, so. What does this lead to? This leads to if you have graduate training and actually prepping radiocarbon samples or oxygen isotope samples or so on and so forth, and you know how to run and you know how to fix these machines, you now not only open yourself up to jobs as in the traditional tenure-track route, but you also open up yourself to potentially positions in those larger laboratories as research scientists which you can also still do research, but you might also be doing, you know, other kinds of science as well. So uh, in a field that is becoming increasingly competitive for those tenure-track positions, the, the archaeological scientist who is, who is trained to run and be able to, to deal with these machines, which sometimes, you know, quite frankly, break all the time. And, right. You've know, uh, <laughs> got to know how to fix them, you know. Uh, that opens up a whole new possibility uh, in in this increasingly competitive field. Um, and that's what we want for our students. We want for our students to get jobs. We want them to, to get good jobs and to, um, you know, uh, progress as a, in whatever manner they see fit. I, you know, 
whatever makes them, whatever fulfills them intellectually and academically. We only have two minutes left. Uh, where do you see the profession going, and, and how do you see education fitting into the system, and uh, where will we be, would you say, in about a decade? Oh, in a decade, I think that uh, in the U.S., we, again, I, I think we are at a crisis. We're at a turning point, and we are going to have to adapt uh, to the realities of uh, the specializations in archaeology. Uh, we're going to have to find some way of, of, of training our students in these various methods and, and having them still engage in larger anthropological thinking or, or ge- geographic thinking, um, if, you know, whatever sort of broader uh, things they want to engage in. Um, or else we are you know, no longer going to be, and I, I think we were at, at a time uh, at the forefront of of archaeological thinking, and you know, particularly, you know, I read the stuff from the seventies and eighties, and it seemed like it was such a uh, exciting time. Um, but I don't think we're there anymore. Uh, and to continue to be leaders in the field, we 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 have to deal with this crisis of of uh, silo science and um, interdisciplinarity and uh, training our students to be sort of more than, more than just anthropologists, um, but archaeological scientists um, that, that do, you know, anthropology, that, that engage in broader questions. I mean, I, I see myself as wearing many hats. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm an anthropologist, but in other cases, sometimes I might be an ecologist, you know, if I'm, I'm collaborating. I have to learn that, you know, to transgress those disciplinary boundaries, uh, to open myself up to new things. Um, and I, I think, you know, if, if we don't do that uh, as, as a discipline, um, you know, here in the U.S. especially, then, then we might fall behind. Thank you very much, Vic. I'm sorry, we're going to have to wrap it up. Thanks so much, and until next week, we will see you again uh, with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This is Joe Schuldenrein saying good evening to all. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.